0: Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are Martin Arnold, our banking editor, Caroline Binham, our financial regulation correspondent, Emma Dunkley, our retail banking correspondent, and down the line from New York, Laura Noonan, our investment banking correspondent. This week, we'll be reviewing the year in finance and in banking in particular. We'll be hearing from Caroline on the regulatory backdrop, from Emma on some privatisations, from Laura on the change of guard at the top of some of Europe's biggest banks, and a forward-looking piece on financial technology from Martin. First, though, to Caroline. If you're looking back at your pick of the stories of the year, Caroline, it's been quite a busy one, as ever, in financial regulation. What was your top story?
1: I think it would have to be the ousting of Martin Wheatley, who was the chief executive of the UK regulator, the Financial Conduct Authority, back in July. This for a few reasons. I think it's quite difficult to think of another more overt example of political interference in what is meant to be, ostensibly at least, independent regulation. But it's also quite emblematic of general tone that we're feeling at the moment from government. And in that respect, I think May's general election and the win by the Conservative Party really represented a tipping point in what we call the regulatory pendulum. And uh, since then, we've seen several emollient moves by the government, such as recalibrating the bank levy, that really mean that the mood music has changed and for poor old Mr Wheatley he no longer chimed with that mood music and so had to go.
0: To what extent is this a British phenomenon exclusively or is it you know more broadly true do you think?
1: I think the UK underscores a wider phenomenon and that really is that the regulatory pendulum swings back and forth and political rhetoric moves more quickly so we have in Europe Lord Hill entirely coincidentally a Tory who has announced a review of how financial regulation implemented since the crisis might mesh that's also echoed at a global level by Basel and also the FSB but I think also in the states there's been some pushback recently particularly from the Republicans on the extent of Dodd-Frank.
0: I guess seven or eight years after the crisis peaked to have this pendulum swing back is no surprise The question, I suppose, is what happens next year in terms of further softening of these moves.
1: Indeed. I mean, I think that perhaps as a forecast for next year, it would be what is the right level of regulation? Turning it back to Mr Wheatley, I think there are a lot of questions left in his way, not least who replaces him. And that's still undecided. Hopefully a question that will be resolved pretty shortly. The shortlist is Pretty short, as I understand. And I think two of the lead contenders would have to be Tracy McDermott, who is the acting chief exec. She was head of enforcement, then head of supervision at the FCA. And also Greg Medcraft, who is currently the head of Australia's securities regulator. And he also heads IOSCO, which is the global body of financial regulators. What I would say on both of those appointments is that neither of them, to my mind, really represent a vast break from the past with Mr Wheatley. Both of them are very much in the same mould and have quite substantial credentials as banker bashers in their own right. I guess the question would be is whether they have the political nous to put those aside.
0: Well Tracy in particular has been notable in having toned down her rhetoric in speeches since she became a candidate so uh...
1: She has indeed I mean I think it's worth noting that her odds have substantially got better since she gave a speech in October to the Mansion House which was attended by lots of bankers and lots of Tory politicians where she said the current amount of regulation was unsustainable
0: Very good. Let's move on to our second look back. Emma, you have picked the privatisation drive, particularly Royal Bank of Scotland in the UK, as a bit of a moment for the year.
2: Yes, it's quite a landmark move because uh, the government beginning to sell off Royal Bank of Scotland some 7 years after it was bailed out during the financial crisis kicks off the UK's biggest ever privatization. So George Osborne in the summer began with a 5.4% sale of RBS, albeit at a 1.1 billion loss to taxpayers. So whilst this was praised by some as a great move in beginning the privatization, which is quite a long protracted process. Others criticised it. So on the supporting camp, you have some people saying great that he started it, it increases the free float in the bank, supports the share price and ultimately liquidity and will help a further sell down. And you've got others saying even though the first tranche came at a loss... As part of the overall portfolio of other asset sales by the government, such as Lloyd's and the former Northern Rock mortgage book, ultimately they hope it will be profitable for taxpayers. On the other side of the camp, you've got criticism in terms of it was at a loss to taxpayers and it's a bit of a fire sale and a move by George Osborne to really boost his leadership bid ahead of the next election.
0: Now, of course, RBS was the biggest bailout in the world of any bank. £45 billion in total pumped into RBS by the British government. But there have been plenty of others around the world, notably ABN AMRO, which was actually ironically tied up with the whole RBS Farrago back in 2008. The acquisition of what was then ABN AMRO tipped RBS into its big problems. The rump Dutch business of ABN AMRO was then resurrected as an institution in its own right by the Dutch government, I should say. And that now has been privatised as well.
2: Indeed. And we also have AIB in Ireland as well on the cards to come soon. So this is positive from a global perspective in a sign that we're really moving on from the global financial crisis in that sense after all these state bailouts.
0: Well, that's a neat link to Laura's theme, which is, I guess, another example of us moving on. There's been a wave of change of leadership, particularly at Europe's biggest banks, Laura. And that's something that, I guess, defines the year in many ways as well.
3: Yeah, I think it's hard to think of any other year where we've had the same kind of sea change in terms of the chief executives of some of Europe's biggest banks. And for anyone who hasn't been around for the last year, Barclays, Standard Charter, Deutsche Bank and Credit Suisse have all either had new CEOs in place or in the case of Deutsche Bank, a new co-CEO who is effectively the man in charge. So certainly there's been a massive turnover there. That in turn then has inspired a strategic change in pretty much all of those banks. So they would have had, in most cases, a strategic review ongoing going into the year. And certainly it is fair to say that all of those new CEOs or those new leaders coming in have all firmly put their imprint on that plan. And it has really shaped the future of how those banks are going to
0: look going forward. And to what extent has this kind of been brought upon these banks, or at least many of them, by the pressure that they've been under in terms of their business model?
3: I think that is certainly a contributing factor. I mean, if you look at these banks, they're all banks who definitely had a need to make a big strategic change. I mean, Deutsche Bank and Credit Suisse in particular, they've been coming under pressure for a long time. They had been trying to do various things, but certainly both of the outgoing CEOs in those cases, they were certainly criticised for not being responsive enough to the changes in the environment. So I think there was definitely a feeling that they had a better chance of making a break with the past and doing a definitively different and new strategy if they had a new person in charge. Because in the case of both of those banks, the outgoing CEOs, Brady Dugan and Andrew Jane, both would have come up through the investment banking side. And they were both criticised for having too much of an allegiance to investment banking and for being too slow and too reluctant to make the kind of deep cuts which both the investors in their two banks demanded, but also which the new CEOs who have come in subsequently, they have taken a much more dispassionate look really at how investment banking fits into the overall group. And I think that certainly by bringing in new people, they were able to achieve things that they wouldn't have been able to achieve had they had the old CEOs in place. Barclays is a slightly different case. I mean, they've almost gone in the opposite direction to those two European banks. Barclays would have had the retail banker in charge. Anthony Jenkins, they've now moved to appointing a former JP Morgan investment banker, Jess Staley. So they've almost had the opposite transition. And what they're trying to do really is to reinvigorate the turnaround at the bank. So I think there was fear that. Bank had kind of gone as far as it was going to go under the former CEO, Anthony Jenkins, and that there was really a need to kind of get some fresh energy behind it. And that is what they're hoping that their new CEO is going to do.
0: And underlying all of this, of course, is another theme that you've been writing about through the year the declining fortunes of the European investment banks vis a vis the Americans. And I suspect we'll be reading more about that in 2016. Thanks, Laura, for that. Let me turn finally to Martin. Forward looking theme for you. Financial technology, fintech companies have been making great strides this year, not least in terms of
4: people they've hired. Well, that's right. If I could pick one story, one moment of the year, something that has typified this year for the world of banking and finance, it's Blythe Masters, the former JP Morgan investment banker, who in April joined a fintech company, Digital Asset Holdings, as its chief executive. And this is a fintech company that is focused on the area where there is arguably the most hype or the most excitement, depending on your point of view, which is the blockchain. Now, this is the technology that underpins Bitcoin, the digital currency. It's a distributed ledger technology, which means basically that the information is not held on a central server. It is shared across a network of computers like the internet. And this has the potential, many in finance are starting to realise to completely transform many areas of settlement, clearing, capital markets, payments, insurance. So many areas of finance could be completely transformed in terms of their costs, in terms of the speed of execution. And Blythe Masters leaving, you know, arguably the world's preeminent bank in the form of JP Morgan to go and become chief executive of this small startup, I think typifies this trend, which really has taken hold this year. I I think up until this year you've seen a lot of the leading figures in the banking sector be quite dismissive of the challenge from fintechs saying that you know they'll be blown away by the next crisis they're too small they can't cope with regulation they're just chipping away at the edges and I think this year they've all woken up to the fact that actually as more and more money is piling into this sector from venture capital groups and others billions and billions of dollars and people like Blythe Masters also Vikram Pandit the former chief executive Citigroup, John Mack, the former Morgan Stanley chief executive, are joining some of these startups in digital payments, in peer-to-peer lending, the so-called robo-advisors that offer online wealth management advice. All of these areas are really starting. I mean, they're still small, but the they momentum that they've got, there, the peer-to-peer lenders are doubling the volume of loans that they're extending every year. They're starting to take it seriously for the first time, and that's why I've chosen. Some people might roll their eyes and say, oh, you know, Blythe Masters, it's all hype, the blockchain, whatever. But Actually, you know, I think most people would agree that this year was the year when banking started to take fintech really seriously.
0: And of course, Blythe Masters is an interesting example because she supposedly rebuffed an approach to go and run the investment bank at Barclays in favour of sticking with her job.
4: Well, exactly. So we don't know the exact details behind that, but certainly it seems as though her old boss... Jez Staley had a conversation with her where the idea of her joining Barclays to run its investment bank was floated and nothing came of it. So whether she was formally offered the job and turned it down, I'm not quite sure about that. But uh, it's certainly true to say that she is somebody who is highly sought after, came through the crisis with a pretty good reputation and is seen as a very talented banker. And to have chosen to go to a small startup that's focused on this area that doesn't even exist yet the blockchain really I mean you know, a lot of it is theoretical or, or there's just kind of a proof of concepts being built at the moment so it's very much in its early stages it really is emblematic of the kind of shift of people of money of resources and, and attention that's happening in the industry now
0: well I suspect we were talking about fintech and the blockchain a lot more in 2016 thank you Martin that's it for this week and for this year all that's left for me to do is to thank Martin, Caroline, Emma here in the studio, and Laura down the line from New York, and to say that we'll be back after a two week break on January the fifth. Thank you for listening, and remember you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at Ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until even on a budget, quality is non negotiable. Until January, goodbye.